You're listening to And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode of Books and Boba, we're chatting with author Rachel Hang, um, whose newest book, The Great Reclamation, just came out this past week. Uh, the Great Reclamation is a sweeping historical fiction story with some magical realism elements following the life of Lee Abun, a fisherman's son, and his experiences on the island of Singapore as it transitions from a British and Japanese colony to an independent nation. Yeah, this book covers a lot of ground. It goes from British colonialism, like uh, Marvin said, through World War II, Japanese occupation, and then post-war capitalism. And just the pursuit of uh, modernity, the current day Singapore that we are all used to seeing. We had a great conversation with Rachel about her inspirations for writing a story and the themes within. And it was really fascinating also to learn about her own history um, growing up in Singapore and how she came into writing. So here is our chat with Rachel Hang. Enjoy, everyone. And we're here with Rachel Hang, the author of Suicide Club and also her most recent novel, The Great Reclamation. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, um, we always love to start off our conversations with authors to learn a little bit more about um, their backgrounds because we love to discover how people, especially Asian, Asian Americans, get into novel writing as, as like a, a thing they do. So um, can you... Let us know how you got started in um, writing fiction, writing stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm from Singapore. I grew up there, um, and you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be a writer growing up. I didn't know it was a, a thing that you could do. Um, so people always ask me, "Oh, did you always want you know know you wanted to be a writer?" And I'm like, "No, I didn't even know that was a job." <laughs> like, I think I, um, you know, I loved books obviously I always loved reading like all writers um, and I was that kid who would like steal the library cards from like my aunts and uncles so that I could borrow more books from the library because they lowered the borrowing limit to four and it was very distressing <laughs> to young Rachel um, and so you know I, I was a big reader uh, but you know yeah didn't realize I guess I didn't realize like people wrote those books so I thought they were all dead or something um, but you know and also Singapore being a fairly conservative society uh, it's it just like not a place where, you know, writing or any kind of artistic professions are encouraged. So I didn't grow up with that, being exposed to that at all. Um, and also because my family was, you know, faced a lot of financial difficulties. So in my mind, it was always like, oh, I'm going to get a job that is like stable and like well-paying and like support my parents and like all of this. And so I, it was only in my late 20s, mid late 20s that I started writing fiction. Um, and I was working in a, a corporate job at the time. I was working for the Singapore government because um, I had taken a scholarship to go to college and I had to work for them for six years after um, doing essentially what was finance. Uh, I was working for the Sovereign Wealth Fund and, you know, just not loving it, like not really fitting in. I was like, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? And feeling very distant from from literature. And I had studied comparative literature at university. Um and just feeling kind of 
very depressed and like missing uh, books and and my husband who at that who was my boyfriend from college uh, and in college he had always said I think you should be a writer and I was like don't be ridiculous like people are not writers it's not a thing that people do like this is certainly not me you know and he was like but you love stories you love books like you should try writing fiction I'm like no that's just nuts like I'm not gonna do that you are so silly, you know? Um, and then I, um, but then when I was in this job years later in kind of corporate depression, uh, I, I was like, Oh, why not give it a shot? You know? And I, I started writing fiction I started writing short stories. Um, and very fortunately had some of my early short stories accepted by literary journals when I sent them out, which was great. Cause that gave me like the first encouragement I needed. And then I faced like years of rejection. So then like everything I sent out, didn't get accepted. I think I got like hundreds of rejections after that, but I had those like early acceptances to kind of, you know, like just feel like, you know, I wasn't totally off base. Um, and then I started writing my first novel um, while I was still working in my job. Uh, and so I would get up at like 5am and like start writing, you know, I'd write for an hour before going to work. Um, sometimes I'd write on my commute or on my lunch breaks. And that was how I wrote the entirety of my first book. And I wrote and sold it while I was still at that job. Um, and then I, after I could leave my job, so I finished my contract, I applied for MFA programs and I ended up coming. So I was living in London at the time and I ended up coming back to the US. So I went to the MFA program at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, and I just, yeah, I love that because I never had the chance to study creative writing previously. So I wanted to like have mentors, have a community to like meet other writers. Um, and that was just really wonderful for me. And I wrote The Great Reclamation while in my MFA program. Nice, nice. Yeah, it, it's interesting because a lot of um, authors we've talked to on the show, you know, they are from corporate backgrounds. And yeah. they do say, like, I didn't know writing was a job. And, totally. you know, in college, they take that one literature class and it changes their life. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like, it's like really funny that... Um, you didn't think that writing was a path that you could take when you were younger. Um, but your debut novel, um, Suicide Club, it's a speculative dystopia story about mm -hmm. uh, immortality and death. And your newest novel, The Great Reclamation, is historical fiction, probably mm -hmm. the most op like the most opposite you can get yeah. uh, <laughs> from that genre. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us like, like, what made you want to uh, switch things up? Yeah, um, I didn't even think of it as switching things up, I think. I feel like I have always had a wide range of interests in writing fiction. So even my short stories are very different. So I write many short stories that are set in, like, you know, just like present day Singapore, like present day the US. Um, and so it does seem like historical fiction in Singapore is very different from you know, near future speculative fiction in New York. Um, but I would say both of them involve a lot of world building. Um, and I also, uh, essentially, so even though my, even though Suicide Club was set in New York, I think I was still writing about Singapore in a way. Um, and I first kind of found this out when I was talking to a Singaporean journalist who was reviewing it for the Straits Times in Singapore. And she was like, oh, you know, 
reading this book, it's set in the US and it's set in the near future, but it's about a society in which like success is very narrowly defined and that like, involves a lot of like restraint and control and like government limits and so on. She's like, it feels very familiar to Singapore. And I was like, oh yes, I didn't even realize I was writing, a, but obviously because that's what shaped my experience and my perspective, right? So it's going to be in my fiction no matter what. So even though it wasn't about Singapore in an obvious way, I think I was still writing about like, yeah my identity as, as a Singaporean, my experiences of the world. Um, and so this book, The Great Reclamation, is historical and is about kind of the the birth of the nation. It's set, you know, in the 20 years before Singapore gains independence from British colonialism um, and is about that, like, struggle for independence and, like, that definition, like, struggle to define, like, what is a national identity? Like, what does it mean to be Singaporean? So you like briefly mentioned that you wrote this book during your MFA program. And I'm just curious, were there any other Asian authors in your program? Like what was yeah. like your curriculum <laughs> like? Yeah, there was um, uh, there was a poet from one of my really good friends today, a poet from China. Um, and there was a playwright from China. Um, so we were all in different genres, but we all knew each other. Um, obviously, because it's a very small program. It's like five fiction writers, three poets, and three playwrights, and then two screenwriters. And it's a multi-genre program, so you all kind of take classes together, which was really cool. Um, and as for my curriculum, it was pretty broad. Um, the interesting thing about the Mishnah Center is that it, there aren't many requirements, so you can pretty much, I think they just require that you take like three fiction workshops in three years. And that was the only thing we had to do. And then you could take classes in anything else. So I was taking classes in like environmental history or like in like, I don't know, documentary theater. Um, and so all of it would go into my novel, even though it wasn't like fiction per se or like just literature. Yeah. Going back to your upbringing really quick, because something that I really wanted to ask you while you were telling your story is mm-hmm. you mentioned that, you know, you grew up reading a lot. And I was just wondering what kinds what kinds of stories would you read? Like what was available to you in like those Singaporean libraries? Uh, like I think mostly, I mean, it was all in English. I was reading in English. I also speak Mandarin, but I am not so good at reading Mandarin. Um, and I grew up speaking English in my household and Hokkien. Uh, and so a lot of our literature was, you know, from the US or from the UK, pretty much. Like there wasn't, I don't think I read any Singaporean authors growing up at all, which is so strange when I think about it later on. Um, and I only kind of discovered Singaporean authors when I was in my 20s, in the when I was in the US and then going back to Singapore. Um, so I grew up reading like uh, a lot of um, American fiction, um, a lot of kind of old British fiction, now that I think about it, you know, a lot of Charles Dickens and like Jane Austen and stuff like that. Um, and that was what we read in school as well, right? In like literature courses, because Singapore follows the British system. So we take like the Cambridge O-levels and A-levels. Um, so our curriculum is like Shakespeare. Uh, and, you know, it's like Shakespeare. I think we did, uh, well, I'm totally blanking, shows how much it made an impression (laughs) i did love my literature classes in school um but it was definitely very very kind of western civilization focus you know it wasn't we didn't read i think we read maxine hong kingston that was maybe the only asian writer we read um and i don't think we understood it because i think to in order to understand maxine hong kingston you need to understand america first and then like the asian experience in america right but we were singaporeans (laughs) 
like Singaporean teenagers. I had never been to the US. Like I didn't understand what it meant at all. Um, and so I don't think we also, we had the context for the book either. Um, and, and then the rest of what we read was really, yeah, it was very sort of standard, you know, the Western canon stuff. Bunch of dead, dead white men, right? Yeah, yeah. The occasional dead white woman. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> well, I feel like Singapore is, you know, being brought into the spotlight in literature, mostly contemporary literature. Like, obviously, there's Crazy Rich Asians by uh, Kevin Kwan, and mm-hmm. most recently, uh, Fraud Squad by Kyla Zhao. Um, but your book is, it shows a different side of Singapore. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your book, uh, The Great Reclamation, so our listeners can have a bit of context? Yeah, so I think, you know, as you mentioned, um, probably the Singapore that most Americans would be familiar with is the one you see in the movie, right? In like Crazy Rich Asians, the kind of sparkling, modern, urbanized Singapore. Um, and that's the Singapore that exists today. In a way, it was the Singapore that, that I grew up within, even though I certainly wasn't a crazy rich Asian, as the majority of the population isn't. Um, but I, it was a very different Singapore than I would hear about when I would hear my mother talking about her childhood and how she grew up. You know, she grew up in a wooden shop house. You know, they had a tarp for a ceiling. Whenever it rained, it would flood. Um, they didn't have running water. And she had other relatives who lived in more rural parts of the island who, you know, they would have like, outdoor outhouses. They didn't have electricity. Like it was completely different. The island was just not urbanized in the way that it, it became in the next um, 30, 40 years. And so I think with hearing her talk about her childhood, it felt like it was a different country, even though it was the same place, right? So it's almost like I, when I talk to immigrants in the US, I get a similar sort of vibe from those, like similar experience of like dislocation, for, even though that's a physical dislocation of like hearing about this country that you don't know that is somewhere else physically. But in Singapore, we are in the same place. Like nobody moved, but somehow we're like dislocated through time because of so much that happened in those 30 years. And that was just always a really strange thing to think about and um, to kind of experience my mother, you know, like walking around the streets and she would say, oh, this is where we used to live, but I'm not sure because they changed all the roads. And so it looks totally different. Like I don't even know where the old building used to be. Um, and so I think this book came out of that desire to give life to that old Singapore that existed not very long ago um, and that is almost completely gone today. And to think about, you know, what does home mean when um, when the physical markers of home are no longer there, when you're like constantly building over things and constantly erasing um, those memories? How do you define who you are and your place in the world when like your home is no longer the way it was when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, your book, when while reading it, invoked a lot of uh, memories of you know. I grew up. Uh, my my parents are from Taiwan. My grandparents from China. They also got affected by you know World War II and all the development. And mm. I, I also remember like walking through a park that used to be where my grandmother's house was, but now it's mm-hmm. like a giant public park in the middle of Taipei. Um, oh or my, like gosh. my, you know, my dad pointing out where they used to live, where now there's a McDonald's, right? So yeah, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, I'm sure, you know, South Korea is the same way, like within one generation, it just got so developed and modernized and yeah. there is some yeah. dissonance there. I will say, yeah, like every five years when I go, I'm like, 
wow, everything has changed. Um, it is just so fast. Which I guess happens everywhere to some degree, but somehow in certain parts of the world, like maybe more and at certain times, you know, if history, like I think in Singapore, especially in that post pre-independence, post-independence period, there was this feeling of um, a desire for self-determination, right? It's like for so long we have been ruled by others. There was the Japanese occupation, there was the war, there was like British colonialism. Um, this is our chance to like create a, a home for ourselves. Like this is our chance to like seize control of our destiny as a nation. Like I think that was that kind of hope and optimism, right? And that's where so much of the like enormous urbanization came from, this desire to like give people homes, which I think is not something you can, which is why it's not a straightforward thing. You can't just say, oh, development is bad. Like, you you know, I can't say, oh, my my mother was, uh, it was a bad thing that she then got to like, you know, live in a safe place with like running water and electricity and wasn't at the risk of like fires, right? Um, so it's this thing that the whole community is like trying to balance, like, oh, what development is like good, necessary, do we want it? But then we're also destroying our way of life. And that's why it's so complicated because it's like, I think that all these like competing interests at play. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge theme in your book is this um, clash between like idealism and pragmatism. And, you know, you illustrate that really interestingly through your use of magical realism, because your book, mm -hmm. even though it's this historical epic about the history of Singapore, like a key part of your story are these magical islands that appear and disappear mm -hmm. at will. Uh, can you talk to us about like how and why you decided to incorporate some magical realism into your story? Yeah, so I um, I think because so much of like what actually happened seems almost unreal or seems like magical, right? Like land reclamation itself seems like a magical thing that you can like make land from sea. And, you know, Singapore has grown 25% in landmass since the 1960s. That's the degree to which the island has changed. Um, and so those real changes that take place in, in like real life seem almost magical already. And so I think I wanted to bring that in from the very beginning to have these islands as like representative of the fact that physical reality is so malleable and it's so fickle and so unreliable that it, it you know, it's something that we take for granted that is like sort of fixed and solid and permanent isn't necessarily that, isn't necessarily always going to be that way. Was the magical islands like in the first draft? Was it something that you always planned on having, or was it something that came much later on? Um, it kind of came. I didn't plan to have it. I don't. I think it kind of appeared as I was writing. It felt sort of organic to the book. Um, I think. Um, yeah, and actually, um, I don't know if you've read "The Man with the Compound Eyes" by Wu Ming Yi. And it's about, um, it's also about land, not land reclamation, but about transformation of land in Taiwan, I think. And he also has these like sort of magical elements that like kind of give focus to like um, this malleability of the landscape and like how things you can't like depend on, you know, land being like always there. Uh, but anyway, sorry, that was a digression. Uh, but I think it was it wasn't something that I had planned. I think I was reading a lot and I was trying to understand like, oh, how do I, how do I, how do I make all of these like historical forces um, feel like feel um, tangible and like and urgent and like visceral. And I think that was why I kind of lead into the slight magical realism, because I think there are a lot of novels like 
um, you know, the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead or um, the Old Drift by Nawali Sapel that like do that with history. Like you take all of these like complex like forces at play and you figure out, you kind of literalize it into some form of not, I, I don't even think of it as magic. I think it's sort of like some element that is history at a slant. That's like, it's reality, but it's just like slightly off. Um, and it's not like totally, you know, because I think the thing about the islands is like they could exist, right? Because they're no more magical than all the other stuff that happens in the book that like actually happened in reality. Yeah, I mean, history is a sort of myth to, totally, uh, to us. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in your acknowledgments, you list a lot of uh, sources and you also uh, talked about hearing stories from your mother. So I'm curious, like, what was your research process like? How long did it take? And also, how much research did you have to go <laughs> into fishing? <laughs> Yeah, um, a lot. <laughs> I tried to go on a fishing boat at some point, but sadly, no one would let me. No one would let me get on a boat. Um, but I, I did research for about a year before even starting to write, um, and that was like reading books, articles. Uh, the National Archives of Singapore are available online. Very fortunately, so I spent a lot of time like looking up photographs, government documents, newspapers. Um, and also they had really great oral history interviews where you can just listen to people talk about their lives. So you can hear like, oh, what it was like to live through that time. And I even found one interview of like a guy who lived on the coast as they were reclaiming. And so he talks about like the dust and the noise and the sand and all of that. Um, so I spent a year doing just that and then and then starting to write. Um, and the challenge, of course, of writing fiction is then you have to like forget all the details, right? Because there's always the temptation of like, oh, I need to put all this good stuff in. And then it reads like a history textbook and not like a story. Um, and so I love what um, Toni Morrison says about writing Beloved. I think she says something like she did all the research and, and she needed imagination to show up the facts. And so I always try to like hold on to that like in writing historical fiction, that like you have all these facts and you have all this information that's like really cool or really cool to us as writers because you're interested in the topic. Maybe not everyone is. Um, and then it's like, how do you bring it to life in the form of like characters and language and metaphor um, and to make it feel like evocative and rich and like a world that the reader wants to spend time in? Yeah. I mean, speaking of language, um, the way that you employ like language in your book is it was really interesting. Like you use Singlish as like a stand in mm -hmm. for like the, the local Hokkien or Chinese that mm -hmm. your your um, villager characters speak to each other. Um, and, you know, you also employ a lot of Singlish slang um, mm -hmm. that, you know, is birthed from over a century of British colonialization and, you know, a lionization mm -hmm. of English as a language. Um, can you talk mm -hmm. a little a bit about how you how you portrayed or how you decided how you were going to portray language in your book? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, that was a very important thing to me in writing this book. And I think Singlish, as you as you point out rightly, it is a stand in for Mandarin, Hokkien, Malay, whatever language the characters are speaking, right? Um, because it is written in English. Um, and I guess the other option would have been like to write it in the actual language, but it still wouldn't be because if you're writing in Mandarin, you would need to write in the characters. Um, and so I think it felt like a compromise, not a compromise, but it felt true to how life in Singapore feels where, you know, where you are speaking different languages, but the common language is often Singlish. Like that is the 
I, they will say that it's English, but it's it's not the common language. It's, it's English, and it is a language entirely of its own, based on the fact that you know people can't understand it if you don't know what it is. Um, and so I think that was a very deliberate choice to have the characters be speaking English, uh, singlish, and to incorporate um, elements of you know like when. Um, like the fish are given their local name, right? So you have the name in Malay. Um, the term garmen is like what, it, they wouldn't have called it that in the time, at the time. That's something like Singaporeans say today, right? Like it's used all the time. You're like, oh, garmen's like doing something. You know, it's like, this is a this is slang from today. And likewise, they wouldn't have spoken Singlish the way that we're speaking it now. Um, but I think historical fiction is always reflected through a present day lens. Um, and I, you know, when I wrote this book, I wanted it to speak to Singaporeans today and to kind of have that conversation between the present and the past. And so that's why I think I use Singlish a lot, even if it's something that would be, that may not be like completely historically accurate, quote unquote. Yeah, I liked how you represented it in in English for your readers, because um, when your characters are talking in Hokkien, for example, like, uh, the sentences are shorter, the way they uh, order their subjects and uh, objects, it's a little bit different from when characters are talking in Mandarin and uh, British English. Like, how did you decide how you're going to differentiate the languages? Yeah, I think as a Singaporean, uh, especially one who then came to the US, I am used to code switching, right? Like even within the context of Singapore, you are always code switching because it is has this like colonial history and English is the official language. So we have like formal English that you would speak like, I don't know, in a professional setting or like during an exam, like we would have these like English exams where you would go and like speak in front of an examiner to prove that you could actually speak English. Um, or like if you're speaking to... Um, yeah, like a government official, you know, in a formal setting, in a legal setting, or if you're speaking, like you're ordering food at the hawker center, like talking to your family at home, right? So we, I think there are these different registers of like English and Singlish, um, and we're always like toggling somewhere along that spectrum. And so I think it came very naturally to do that in the book as well. It just, I didn't really think about it consciously. It was more sort of like whatever seemed natural to the character and the setting, like whatever situation they were in, like I would, you know, adjust accordingly. Yeah, a lot of the story also takes place um, in the village, the uh, kampong that uh, your main character, uh, Boon, is from. Um, did you visit an actual village to get like the atmosphere correct? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like your writing is so descriptive. It's cinematic. And I just feel like mm -hmm. I'm there. So oh, I, I, I'm so just much. like wondering if you actually like went to a village and just like yeah. absorb that. So there aren't many original villages left in Singapore. And along that coast, the southeastern coast, none of those remain. Um, so I wasn't able to visit, you know, one that would have been uh, just like that. Um, and obviously the, the villages themselves have changed as well. Um, but off the coast of Singapore, there is an island called Pulau Ubin. And there are some like remnants of like the, the villages that used to be there. And some of the old houses are still there, even though they are different. Um, and it's a place where like the vegetation is still, you know, still kind of present the way it used to be. So I did visit a few places in like Singapore that still have that left. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of Boone, your uh, main character, um, he's he's shaped by the political changes, uh, like a lot of outside forces, the mm -hmm. political changes and his love for his childhood friend. 
Uh, can you talk more about how his character came to you, how his voice came mm-hmm. to you? Yeah, I um, I think the first inkling of Abun came in a short story, which actually ended up being um, a chapter in the middle of the book. So it's the start of part three when he is in the village and you first see the like people dressed in white coming to the village and putting flags into the swamp. Um, and that started as a short story. And I think once I found him at that point, I sort of understood, okay, this is a person who is caught between, um, you know, different sides of this political change. And he has to decide who he wants to be in this battle, right? Who is he going to side with? Where does his loyalties lie? Um, And then once I had him there, I wanted to explore what had happened before. So what got him to that point? What were the different things that had like shaped this young man um, into the person that he is today? So that's why I went back. And then we meet him when he's seven years old at the very beginning of the book. So you learn about, oh, you know, his family, um, you know, what happens during World War Two. no spoilers. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, what happens after the war, right? How do they rebuild? Um, and then, of course, his relationship with Siok Mei, his childhood best friend who ends up the great love of his life um, and the ways in which their love is tested and challenged throughout. Yeah, I mean, I loved all of the history and the backstory of the characters that you weaved into the book. Um, It gives us a better understanding of their motives and why they feel uh, certain ways. Was it challenging to keep tabs on all of your (laughs) characters? Because you have so many characters. Uh, And whose backstory did you enjoy exploring the most aside from Abun? Well, I, I see on Marvin's wall, there are all these post-its, but that's essentially what I did. I had a giant wall <laughs> full of post-its that were always moving around and they were different colors and I had lots of uh, index cards as well. Um, so it was challenging, I would say. it's more. I think it was more challenging to figure out how to tell it in a way that didn't seem confusing. But in my mind, I knew who they all were, so I could keep track of them. Like I knew why they were doing the things they were doing, but then I would forget like, okay, I didn't put this in chapter three and now it's in chapter 10. Like I need to keep track of, you know, so logistically uh, it was a lot to keep track of everything. Um, But emotionally, I think it it felt, they just felt like real people to me at that point. So I I knew, you know, who they were and why they were doing what they were doing. Um, And then the second part of your question was, was it about who? Yeah. Whose backstory did you enjoy exploring the most? Um, I think I really loved, um, his parents' backstories, both of them, and kind of understanding, you know, his... Because someone observed, a different interviewer observed that um, Abun's life is very much shaped by the women around him. First his mother, and then, you know, Siok Mei, and then Natalie, right, whom he meets later. Um, And I think his mother is such an important character in the story because she's the one who kind of galvanizes the change in a way, as mothers so often are, right? She's thinking about, okay, what's the best for my child? Like, how do I secure, you know, the future for the next generation? And so she's the one who like pushes him to go to school, even though like other kids aren't going to school. She's the one who says, yes, you should then go on to further studies, even though that's really unusual for a fisherman, right? Um, and so I loved like writing her backstory and understanding how she came to be like the like fiercely kind of ambitious and driven woman that she was, even despite the kind of constraints of her time. Yeah, I mean, I love the uh, observation that Abun makes when uh, later on, 
when uh, he is working with uh, government officials and he's like, wow, there's a lot of dudes here. <laughs> and I'm used I'm yeah. used to like women who are like making decisions and not yeah. like women being not uh treated as if they are lesser. So I thought that was like a really interesting contrast in your in your book. Yeah, and you mentioned it before, but like the the portrayal of like that pragmatism that comes with, you know, having to live for so long in constant peril, right? Um you, mm-hmm. you portray that clash because you know the Post-war Asia in general, or the world in general, is a very dynamic place. Lots of different ideologies going around. Lots of people like wanting to create change, but also a lot of people who mm-hmm. just want to be safe, right? That that just wants yeah. to find stability. And you know, that's again, that's a that's a huge theme in your book is that clash within Singapore. And you know, it's I think readers will have certain opinions of the actions your characters takes based on like where we are today and what we think about these things. But, you know, a part of, I think, Asian, especially Asian American identity is like kind of putting yourself in your parents' shoes and kind of thinking why they made the decisions that they made and for who did they make it for. And, you know, you kind of explore those as well. I guess, um, can you talk a little bit about how you decided to portray, like approach like these themes in your book, like to not mm-hmm. villainize, but also not like rationalize like either side? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I love that question. I think I, you know, the people in the book represent people that I know, people that I grew up with. This is my community. This is the country I, I know very know and love, right? And I think it's, it's you don't villainize people that you care about and you don't, it, you don't villain, right? So I think it's, um, it's something that, younger generations of Singaporeans have to deal with and probably, you know, maybe in, in other countries as well, um, that the mindset has shifted, right, from our parents' generation to ours. But then the experiences growing up was so vastly different. Like in many ways, we were so much more fortunate and so privileged. So it's very easy to kind of look back and like judge and say, oh, you know, like you should live this way or you shouldn't live that way or why didn't you encourage the arts or like other concerns that just like weren't real possibilities or questions in in a time that was really just focused on surviving because of all of these other forces that were like literally threatening your physical being and your physical livelihood. And I think in, if you're in a place like, you know, maybe if you're like from a certain population in the US or something like that's something that you simply cannot understand, like what it was like to live under threat because you have never experienced it. And your, the ways in which like your worldview is so drastically shaped coming out of that, even when you are no longer under threat, right? Um, and how an entire society, I think, um, and this is not unique to Singapore, I think certainly this is um, this applies in like many parts of the world, where when you've undergone like that kind of collective trauma and tragedy and like difficulty, um, the ways in which you then try to figure out, okay, how do we prevent that from ever happening again? And so that's where the desire for safety comes from. It's like when something has happened to you that you never want to happen again, right? So I think it's something that I grew up with. It's something that we kind of get like hammered into our heads growing up in Singapore. They're like, oh, you guys don't understand what it was like. Like, you know, it was really like, you have it so good. Like you never have to worry about anything. Look, you like live in these like comfortable flats and like you have like electricity and water and like Singapore's becoming this like rich country. Um, and to some degree, like, I think growing up, I rebelled against that. I was like, well, you know, that's like a very 
sort of one-sided perspective and like look at the like violence that that ideology creates as well right like the violence of like um just like that so-called pragmatism like what does it mean it means that you suppress other voices like you don't allow any dissent you kind of have this like um intense urbanization program that like erases so much of history and so much of people's ways of life and benefits some people over others right all of these things but at the same time i also understand it because i see how you know it benefited my parents generation um and i sitting comfortably in the present i can't go back and say like hey you know you should have remained poor like you should have stayed in that like wooden shop house with no running water you know um it seems like a very sort of blinkered and like privileged thing to say um so i think that's where this book came from it's like trying to reconcile that tension between like the desire for a better life um, but at the same time reckoning with the costs that comes with it yeah like what you give up for what you have today um but one thing i did enjoy was the through line that you paint between british colonialism japanese colonialism and then like capitalism like that mm-hmm. it was it's like a straight line between all of those in those in their like <laughs> rule over Singapore and I thought that was really it was interesting to read (laughs) yeah and I think it is you know again interesting to think about the fact that the movie and the image of Singapore that we have today is crazy rich Asians right that that, that's quite telling of like what the values are and you know what the image of that society wants to portray and what sort of value also says something about what speaks to an American audience um, and a wider (laughs) the wider world Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is a straight line from those from that past to this present. Yeah. Obviously with the new generation, like the old Singapore, there is like a distance and um but you also left Singapore to uh pursue your education. Do you think uh you would have been able to write this book if you stayed in Singapore? Like what did coming to America <clears throat> what did coming to America help you understand uh Singapore's history? Um, yeah, I don't think I could have written it if I stayed in Singapore. I think, you know, just like anyone, um, it's very difficult to see see anything about your home or kind of your upbringing until you go outside of it. Um, and you kind of accept stuff as normal, right? So growing up in Singapore, I thought all this was normal. I'm like, of course you knock down buildings in order to, you know, like, of course you, you know, like I kind of accepted the that like mythology of like progress as being like the the ultimate good, you know, without any caveats. Like I, be- you know, I believed it because that was what I grew up steeped in, and that's what you know society believes in. Um, and I think it was only after I left that I started to understand that this was a very specific choice, a very particular choice, um, and one that isn't made everywhere. Um, and so I think I did have to leave in order to get that perspective and to be able to write this book. So. Your book comes out this week. Um, what do you hope readers will take away from it? Um, I hope that they will get a different perspective of Singapore. Um, that, you know, um, that this old Singapore that is so close to vanishing will kind of be brought to life again. Um, and that they engage with the questions of the book, you know, that and they think about um, what it means for them in like their communities, right? If, if their communities have also been changing drastically, if certain ways of life are under threat, you know, what are the things that are being erased today that in 30 years we're going to think about and look back and say, oh, well, that was a pity. Yeah. I'm f- thinking about like how to map that onto like say American issues. And I think the closest thing is probably gentrification of like our ethnic communities and, you know, what we're giving mm-hmm. up in the name of like 
economic development. It's 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 totally it's, yeah. I mean, is there a way for progress and the past to coexist? <laughs> we mm-hmm. don't know. It's a it's a question that we're still trying to grapple with uh, in mm-hmm. today's uh, society. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. totally. Yeah. And I think, I guess, in an American context, um, it might not be like a direct mapping, but at the same time, there's always that question of like how you balance the competing uh, responsibilities, right? Like a responsibility to family, to community, and then to like the next generation. Like it's always a... Yeah. I think for yeah. our generation, it's going to be like climate. Like how do we keep the world from <laughs> totally. breaking down? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe some magic islands in real life. <laughs> um, so as we wind down our discussion, um, I know you're busy with promoting your new book, but are you working on anything else right now? Uh, not at this very moment. <laughs> um, I did start a new book. I've started researching a new book um, before I got into all of this promotion for this book. Um, and it is also historical, uh, set in the 19th century in Singapore, and is loosely about the first botanical gardens that were set up in Singapore. Oh. So it's kind of about this question of like colonial control of nature and the desire to like classify and name and like organize um, again, which I think is a key component of like Singapore's identity. Yeah. I'm excited. I've been to those, the, the botanical gardens in Singapore. It's, it's, it's very like, beautiful, it's like, right? It's like a dome. It's like its own like controlled yeah. environment. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, Rachel, thank you so much for chatting with us on Books and Bulba. Congratulations on the launch of your book. Um, wishing you the best of luck as you get go through your your promo tour. Um, and you know, hopefully, um, we'll have you back on again. Talk about your your next book when it comes out. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really lovely. I love talking to you about it. Thanks. And that was Rachel Hang, the author of The Great Reclamation, available now at booksellers everywhere. And if you are interested in picking up the book after our conversation, um, might I ask that you purchase from the Books and Boba bookshop. All purchases made on our online bookstore does support the Books and Boba podcast, as well as um, your local independent bookstore. So um, we do appreciate any support that you can give. But with that, um, since it's still technically the month of March and we haven't discussed our March book club pick yet, Mira, why don't you remind us what we're reading this month for book club? Yeah, we're reading Kelly Yang's uh, Front Desk and it's a middle grade novel about uh, a child of immigrants who run a motel and it's about uh, learning to speak up for your community and this book has been banned at a lot of public schools in the south and uh, with the current book bans that are happening in america i thought that this was a very timely book to read Um, and for those of you who have already finished front desk we are reading vera wong's unsolicited advice for murderers by jesse q sutanto uh, for the month of april so you can jump on that yeah, um, by the time you've heard this episode, we would have already um, recorded our front desk um, book club discussion. But don't let that stop you from letting us know your thoughts about the book on our Goodreads forums. We always love to hear feedback from our audience. Um, and, you know, if you've already given your feedback, you might hear comments on the upcoming podcast. But with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thanks again to Rachel Hang for joining us for an amazing author chat. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mi Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. We're still here and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So, what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.